you got to win inside to win outside with almost every business. So you got to win inside. If your employees don't love your brand, pay them to leave. And I know it's hard to find employees. And I know that feels like a weird thing to say, but you got to have a lot of love inside. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Slow Smoked Business Podcast. Now, I'm your host, Jared Morgan, joined as always by Franklin Hayes. And today's guest is going to be author Jeff Fromm, who is known as the Millennial and Gen Z Marketing Expert. Now, we're going to talk to Jeff about a bunch of things, but uh, we want to specifically ask him about Web3. What is that? What in the world is social commerce? And then what are the things that you can do with your project or business if you're trying to target a millennial or Gen Z consumer? All right, everybody. Well, we've got another great guest lined up today. Uh, He is known as the Millennial and Gen Z Marketing Guy. We're really interested to hear more about how uh, he earned that title. He's also a great author. Uh, He's also a regular Forbes contributor. He's on the board of directors for Three Dog Bakery. Everybody, please welcome to the show, Mr. Jeff Frum. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. The Millennial and Gen Z Marketing Guy has got to be a title that puts you in high demand, for sure. Give me a little sense of how you got to, how did you get to, I mean, you're writing for Forbes, you're doing a lot of really cool stuff. How did you get into becoming someone who understood those kinds of concepts and writes for Forbes? A short version of a long story is I was a backup tree in my elementary school musical, and uh, I didn't quite make it... (laughs) And so about 12 years ago, I was trying to find content on millennials as consumers, and I couldn't find anything on Google. So I call a friend of a friend, and she happens to be the global head of research at the Boston Consulting Group. And it's like, hey, Jared, you're the global head of research at the Boston Consulting Group. Got this great idea. I can't find any fact-based content on the internet, no matter how I search on millennials as consumers. How about we study it together? Oh, by the way, I'm a little light. How about we do barbecue lunch? You buy half. You're like, okay, I'm the global head of research. I need to tell you a couple things, Jeff. First, we don't pay for other people's research. We don't even really do research with other people. We do our own. But since you're a friend of a friend, like I'm not hanging up on you, I'll call you in a week. Now, we all know the code. She has said, I'll call you in a week. That's the code for, I'm probably not going to hear from her again. A week later, she called and I did a happy dance. She said, we're going to do the study. I'm paying for my half. You're right. Nobody's ever done any fact-based work on it. One thing leads to another. And I wrote five books over a nine-year period. They're all research-inspired books. My most recent book, The Purpose Advantage 2.0, I sort of look at innovation, sustainability, and brand purpose. So how did I get into it all? I don't know. I'm just one of those people who won't give up, couldn't get what I wanted when I went to Google. And, uh, and that's how I got to where I got to. Um, the Forbes thing was also fairly accidental. 2014, before thousands of people started writing for Forbes, they said, we want uh, to try a guest contributor. You'll be our first one. Let's give it a try. And I thought, you know, what do I have to lose? If I don't like it, I quit after the first article. And so I've written about 350 articles. How do you think about, when you think about Gen Z marketing, and so you started with millennial, but now then you've had to sort of, I guess, expand into the Gen Z thing. It feels like um, we didn't need baby boomer and Gen X marketing 
like experts before. Like, I don't think that the shift from one generation to the next wasn't as monumental. Maybe that's just, you know, recentism. I'm thinking about it recently. But would you would you agree? I mean, it doesn't feel like things shifted from generation to generation as drastically as they are shifting now. I, I think what happened was there was a technology adoption curve. And, you know, in the in the 90s, I, I wasn't the first person using the Internet and, and not everyone carried a mobile phone. And when they did, it was this big bag phone. Right. <laughs> and now all of a sudden everyone carries, carries a phone and there isn't anyone on the planet who uses it as a phone. It's just like a modern day texting advice. Nobody's ever calling you back. And so what I would say is we got real interested in millennials and then Gen Z because over time, technology adoption changes have been fueled by younger consumers. And so they have an undue influence on purchase decisions, whether that's what we eat or the entertainment we consume or the social media channels that become popular or the technology devices we carry, they have an undue influence relative to their buying power. And so when there was a lack of information in 2010, uh, it was related to millennials and, and there was a lot of adoption at this point and people were largely carrying devices and they were largely using social channels. They might not have found Twitter in 2010, but they'd found Facebook, which is now Meta and all these other things. So I think what's happened is there's been a lot of interest and it's probably more related to their influence. But then along the way, uh, we found that they also influence work culture. And so, uh, you know, I grew up in an era where like I always tried to beat my boss to work and like uh, we wore ties and I haven't put a tie on in like, I don't know, I think I went to a, a Zoom funeral like a year ago and I had shorts and a dress shirt and a tie on or something, you know? Oh, yeah. A Zoom funeral? Yeah. A Zoom funeral, right? Like during COVID, it was a Zoom funeral. Like, I Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Especially not today. I don't think people are wearing ties as much as they used to be. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and nobody's sort of worried about like, you know, hey, I'm 24. I'm going to figure out how I, you know, I'm at work before my boss. Like, um, that's not like that's not culture today. And so, you know, I grew up in an era where like whoever put in the longest hours and worked the hardest tended to sort of get the most attention. Right now, it's sort of a little more, you know, work life balance and, and, and uh, you know, work from anywhere. And like we're doing this virtually like. Ten years ago, I would have probably looked for like, how can we do a desk side or something, right? So it's just and technology has enabled a lot of change and technology adoption and social media adoption and social commerce and e-commerce are things that tend to be led by youth culture. And the reality is, if you were a 45-year-old woman, are you getting your clues on fashion from a 55-year-old woman or a 35-year-old woman? And if you're a 45-year-old guy or you're getting your uh, exercise and weightlifting clues from a 55-year-old guy or 35-year-old guy, like the, the, the trends, the clues we get tend to be inspired by people a little younger than us. Like, I'd like to think I have a Gen Z mindset for a guy who's 56, but nobody's confusing me with a Gen Zer, you know? It just doesn't happen much. I haven't been ID'd lately. <laughs> well no surprise that you wanted to come on and, and talk about innovation. It sounds like you've been pretty innovative in your career, you know, being one of the first Forbes uh, contributors and, and kind of starting the research on this generational gap. 
which I find pretty interesting. You also talked a little bit about uh, social commerce. Um, what do you think is is next in terms of e-commerce? Is is Web three really the next thing coming down the pipeline? Is it already here, um, or you know, is it just a flash in the pan? What are your thoughts on that? That's a good question. Uh, my crystal ball is far from perfect. There are clouds that come through it from time to time. I, I would say this, um, as, as someone who's done a lot of research, there are tailwinds. And what I would call tailwinds are things like ease, access, convenience, sustainability. And so to the extent e-commerce, social commerce, or other things are easier to do, and they have less friction, the cost of doing them is the same or less, what we'll see is more and more adoption. And so we're still in the early days of a lot of this, right? Um, Because maybe when I buy something, it's still kind of wonky to return it. Or maybe when I buy something, I don't get to really try it on. But as soon as my phone takes a measurement of my eye and I can buy my eyeglasses and not have to go in and I can return it just as easily, like you take all that friction out, you make it easy and the cost isn't anymore. Like... So I think we're still going to see quite a bit of change. Uh, And I think the tailwinds around price, convenience, ease, sustainability. By the way, innovation. I mean, there's a tendency of younger people to want to be seen as innovative, and they tend to engage in behaviors and buy brands that align to these kinds of innovative, sustainable values. So you mentioned something there at the beginning, which was social commerce, right? And so you wrote an article recently about social commerce and what that is. Can you explain what, when you say that phrase, what do you mean? Sure. Uh, I have a daughter. I call her sort of a junior double cheeseburger. She's like an executive, a 30-year-old executive at Pinterest. And Pinterest isn't a site that popular among guys our age, but it's pretty popular among women. And what they're able to do is obviously inspire you on any topic, whether it's barbecue, fly fishing, or kitchen accessories. And since their audience skews very female, it's going to be a lot more kitchen accessories than fly fishing. But the reality is they know what interests individual users. And you can be inspired and purchase things based on that inspiration within that social media environment. So when I think of social commerce, I think that's the definition I'd kind of put forward today. I don't think that definition is going to necessarily stick because as technology changes, social commerce could be that Franklin shared an interesting idea and I decide to buy just off that idea that he shared in LinkedIn or Twitter or somewhere else. And so the notion of social commerce could also evolve over time as as technology involves. But I do think uh, my example of Franklin is relevant because I think the micro influencers, not to diss on Franklin, are going to have a lot more impact. It's okay to diss on Franklin. We do that a lot on the show. Hey, now, watch out. But uh, the micro influencers are going to have a lot more impact in Tomorrowland, Franklin will, than the Michael Jordan of yesterday. And the reason we've seen some of this change to circle around to your initial starting point is 30 years ago, the biggest brands had an advantage. They heated, beaded, and treated their products. They heated, beaded, and treated their advertising messages. And they used ABC, CBS, and NBC to communicate. 
Now, the notion of that today is almost laughable, right? The biggest brands are probably at a disadvantage, and they understand that Franklin's input may, may influence Jared, Jeff, and three other people on the next purchase that they make. And so the notion that ABC, CBS, and NBC are going to be controlled by a handful of large advertisers, it's crazy. And so uh, the, the speed of culture change sort of defines the best brand's ability to adapt and adjust and meet the needs of consumers. And so social commerce, I think, will continue to lead in this way uh, as more and more people uh, have. And, and it's not a one size fits all. So I might look for a lot of advice on from Franklin on topic A and a lot of advice from Jared on topic B and a lot of advice from Susan on topic C. So I'm going to end up over time having different people who influence my thinking by topic and travel and food and business and finance. These are all different topics. So, so I think that's where the world will probably end up, but I don't know exactly how we get there. If you're talking to a startup business who says, you know, that Gen Z and millennials are a core, there's not a lot of startups that say that that's not a core audience, right? But if you're talking to someone that says that's a core audience, how could they use social interaction like that? Or how do they target those generations to actually connect? I didn't put all the things in my bio. I didn't, I didn't tell you that I had a backup tree role. And I, and I didn't tell you that I've actually been involved in a couple of early stage businesses that were once really small and are now, you know, a couple hundred million dollar companies. So, so the core of what I do is not, uh, you know, podcast guests. It's actually working with business leaders uh, to scale their business. And oftentimes I invest alongside the owner. And, uh, and I, I guess I do that pretty well because I've done four of these and I've got four of them that are, you know, 40, 50, 100 to one outcomes, right? Well, come on, name drop. Don't, don't, don't be bashful. This is, this is the barbecue table. You're supposed to be open. Uh, one of them's a ticketing company, like, you know, the kind of things you buy, uh, you know, to go to a sporting event. Uh, one of them's a, a dog bakery. You mentioned it. It's three dog bakery. Uh, and then two of them are B2B plays that you wouldn't necessarily know. A software as a service startup that's owned by private equity now. Um, so here's, here's my advice. Focus on, first of all, the, the product itself. You got to win inside to win outside with almost every business. So you got to win inside. If your employees don't love your brand, pay them to leave. And I know it's hard to find employees. And I know that feels like a weird thing to say, but you got to have a lot of love inside. So love, love your brand inside. Second, focus on having a great product or service. I mean, have you looked at the product or service through the eyes of your customer? I... I'm continually amazed at the gap between the digital journey and the physical journey. Let's say I'm going on an airplane, airplane flight. Like I've got my physical journey and I've got my digital journey. My journey started before I got on the plane. Like the plane is just a piece of that journey. Yet the airplane brand, right? They only own the journey in their mind from when I step on the plane, when I step off. But the consumer's journey is a lot, everything that happened before and after. And all of us have journeys like this. And a lot of times what happens after someone buys is more important than when they're buying. Yet brands disconnect or fail to understand how important the things that happen after are. And so 
you know, just a couple of high-level thoughts. That's a couple of them. Win inside before you try to win outside. And then make sure you don't have a disconnected journey. Uh, and then make sure you understand the journey through not your eyes, not what you think, but what the user thinks. And, and, and if you do those couple of things as a starting point, you're headed down the right road. Um, you know, the, the other things can be trickier, like, you know, giving equity to, to key employees to make sure they're on the ride with you or, or uh, making decisions to spend some money uh, to, to make your product or service better when you already think it's doing pretty well. There's, there's a lot of uh, luck involved. I happen to think hard, hard work and luck are, are sort of siblings. And so I would say, um, you know, I've been fortunate to work with people who were smart, who worked really hard. And so that enabled me to have a lot of success, which allows me to spend my time on a podcast talking slow smoke business. <laughs> nice. Uh, when you talk about uh, buyer personas and journey, consumer journeys and all those things, what do you think are some of the major differences between, you know, even going back a couple of baby boomers to Gen X to millennials to Gen Z? Like, what are the main things that separate them besides age and technology use? There are some differences um, besides age and technology use. Um, there's a, uh, uh, a thing I'd call within Gen Z that's, uh, you know, uh, useful as the new cool. Uh, Gen Z is really pragmatic. They're financially interested. Like, you know, you hear myths like, you know, young people today don't care about money. Yeah, that's bullshit. <laughs> just total bullshit. Just call it what it is. Um, They're financially focused. They're savvy. They trade up and they trade down. If your brand's strong, they'll pay a small premium for it. If your brand's weak, they go to private label. People are like, well, they're not loyal. No, they're remarkably loyal. You just haven't earned their loyalty. Uh, As I look at older consumers, the topic of innovation and sustainability does become slightly less interesting Um, in some cases. there's, um, There's a little bit of a uh, maybe a skepticism that's there, uh, sometimes with some older consumers. Uh, I don't know that the gaps are as big as people make them. I mean, I can't get paid enough if I'm a professional speaker and I am, and so are a bunch of other people. I just don't count on that as my main living, but I can't get paid enough if I don't like accentuate these differences, right? So there's some of it that's also like, let's put a little spin on it. Like, oh my gosh, like, have you seen what millennials are doing now? It's like, you know, youth culture trends have been part of American culture for a long time. Like I wasn't here a hundred years ago, but I got a feeling, you know, they impacted but but the impact is accentuated because in technology now I see that, whether it's food, whether it's, you know, workout trends, whatever those are. And so there, there is an undue influence from young people in categories that maybe wasn't there. Um, I'd say the new American pragmatism is a function of Gen Z. Uh, if I were to talk about sustainability, there's an invor- inverse correlation between age and interest. So typically, the older they are, the less interested they are. So, that, you know, that's one thing you could look at. You could really draw a line that was actually relatively interesting on an inverse correlation between age and interest in that topic. That's interesting. I, I, I hadn't thought of it that way. I, have you seen, um, you know, what, what I think 
is so interesting about the way you talk about this subject is that I think there's like an inherent resentfulness with a lot of people as they look at the way new generations interact with commerce and buy. You know, how many articles have I read through the years about, you know, the millennials are killing the this. We were killing the napkin, right? Every, all millennials use paper towels and millennials are killing terrestrial radio, you know. What they don't talk about as much is the the opposite of that, like the innovation that different generations are bringing to the marketplace. Like, it probably wasn't a baby boomer that invent no offense, but that invented Lyft or Uber or some of these other like, you know, industry breaking brands. So I find that very interesting that it's, and it tends to be a one sided conversation. Yeah. You know, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. I, I for forever would go to New York for work and I'd be like standing there, like doing this, trying to get a cab, right? This is like, I'm in New York. I'm trying to get a cab. My day's over. I'm trying to catch a flight, my day's over, I'm trying to go so meet someone for a drink, whatever it is. You know, and, and even though I recognized this problem for years, I was too dumb to think about, well, you know, maybe there's a way to fix that problem. And I think that uh, more and more what we see is, you know, young people who grow up in a technology area, you know, most of these ridiculously big companies have been started by people who are 30, 35 years old, right? Um, whether it's companies that are looking at um, measuring your sustainability, like green places, B2B software as a service, pure play, uh, startup, you know, founders under 40 years old, or whether it's, you know, Uber, Lyft and Airbnb and the rest of them. And all they're doing is, 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 uh, is identifying a problem that we all feel every day. And we just are like, eh, whatever, I'll just keep trying. Do you think it's a generational mentality where going back to what you talked about, where industries were bigger buckets, right? They had, you had three channels on TV, you had a handful of record labels and everybody bought from big brands. And now the focus is more on personalization. Do you think that younger people have a better understanding of that or embrace it a little bit more? Whereas an older uh, person may just say, well, everybody just kind of got what they got in the seventies and eighties. Do you think that's part of it? I'm going to reframe the question slightly. I think personalization is wildly important. It is easier for small business owners to do that today than ever before. If they leverage consumer culture change and technology. And so the small businesses that move at the speed of consumer culture and leverage existing technologies are able to deliver on that. And I grew up in an era where like, People express themselves by putting an alligator on their shirt and wearing that to, to wherever they're going. And, you know, and Janis Joplin crooned for her Mercedes Benz, right? And, and, and if I asked my kid about Janis Joplin, they'd be like, who are you talking about, dad? Like, really? You know, they got no idea. But, but today's status symbol is experiences uh, and food. Food is a status symbol today. Consumers are paying more for food today than ever before. I got to tell you how cool I am because I'd hate to have you think that I actually drank that coffee over there and I didn't go out to Starbucks and spend $6 on something, right? <laughs> so it, it, there is a change, but a lot of that change is, uh, as I think you've pointed out, related to the intersection of a couple things. And so personalization is a big theme and a big trend. Uh, and in, in the book I wrote on Gen Z, I talked about the Isation Nation. You made a Janis Joplin reference. Is Billie Eilish 
the Gen Z Janis Joplin? I'm not cool enough to answer that question. Yes, Jared. you are. Yes, you are. <laughs> Come on, you're you're a noted expert. Uh, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. If you have a business, or so, if you're talking to someone who's starting a business right now, and they're trying, they've got two or three different ideas. What are what are you think are the types of businesses today that resonate with Gen Z and millennials? Right. I mean, I mean, I'm talking about sort of like categories and things. Is it food businesses? Is it clothing? Is it B2B? What do you think? Well, first of all, um, I think you can be wildly successful in all of those areas. I think you have to narrow your focus and you have to understand the consumer you serve and you have to go out of your way to be exceptional at it. So that ticketing business that I got into, I got into it by luck. Uh, the guy sent a handwritten thank you note after a purchase. Now, no one sends handwritten thank you notes after a purchase. So that intrigued me. So I invested in this business at the time that was worth less than a couple million dollars, right? And now it's worth a lot more. Uh, but it was based on the notion that there's a culture that this four or five person company had that would be scalable because that CEO had a work ethic and brain power and a, and a, and a customer service focus. Right. And I think you can be as successful making donuts as dog treats as tickets and the businesses I'm in are, I'm in two B2B businesses and two consumer businesses. And uh, one of the consumer businesses direct to consumer and one isn't one is sold through distribution. So they could, the four businesses couldn't be more different. Right. And, and, and I think it gets down to people. If you got good people, if they love what they do, you know, I think you do well. And my grandfather, who probably died 25 years ago, he used to say, I never worked a day in my life because I always loved what I did. And he worked. He'd say, I work full time till I die. I'll go half time after that. Because, you know, like ah. if, it's, if it's fun, you know, it's fun. And if it's not fun, that's a long eight hour day. Right. So, yeah, I think and I think I think that's important. But, you know, there are certain categories, clearly. Uh, food is absolutely uh, a huge percent of GDP, uh, probably more today than ever before. Uh, and consumers, and so if I could find a way to affordably, sustainably deliver food to people, uh, then you know th- that's a big winner. Uh, but I don't think that's a secret either. I think it's interesting that you mentioned uh, that whole engagement with your work and your work-life balance. Um, cause I've definitely been in jobs where I experienced that as well, where it felt like I was hanging out with my buddies all day. We were working hard, but it didn't feel like work because we enjoyed what we did. Um, we've seen a shift in that, I think, uh, in a positive direction. I think a lot of people are kind of disengaging from more of the career mindset where you've got to work for the same company for 20, 30 years and then get a retirement package. And that's, that's kind of been a phased out idea for a while. But even more recently with the great resignation, you see a lot of people pulling out of corporate America and starting their own business and starting their own enterprise. So the timing for Jared and I to start this podcast honestly couldn't be any better. Um, And I myself am actually part of that trend. I did the same thing. I moved cross country towards the end of the pandemic. I started my own business, you know, about a year ago. So um, how much of an impact do you think we're going to see with that in the future going forward? Is that a, a long-term thing or you think that's just because of the pandemic effects or what are your thoughts on that? I told you earlier, Gen Z is very financially focused. 
So I think to the extent they can uh, make more money and control their destiny, we'll see a lot of people uh, so start their own small to medium-sized business. I don't know that I think everyone's going to go to the I am my own company model. Uh, there are certain industries where that works well because uh, you can freelance and you can do that, but there are other industries where that does not work well. And so I don't think that trend is going to slow down, but I also think large companies realize that they need talent and they're going to try to emulate and make it feel like a smaller company. So like my daughter works at Pinterest and, you know, she's not in San Francisco anymore, but when she was like, it was fun to go to work, you know, free food, uh, fun stuff. Like the, the big company made it feel like a small company. So I think the big companies that get it right are going to break down the communications barriers and the political barriers that sometimes happen in an office, because there can be more politics in an office with five people than 500 if it's the wrong office environment. And so uh, I, I do think we'll continue to see plenty of people with technology choose to work remotely, but some of them are going to choose to do that for a big company and some for a small, and that gets down to, to um whether the small company business owner embraces the same kinds of trends. Cause I could have a five person company and be sort of uh, a mindset that's, that's too rigid and not attract people that a big company might attract. So mindset will matter more than anything. What do you think is the, um, the most common mistake that people make when they're trying to reach a, a millennial or a Gen Z audience. Like we talk a lot about, oh, this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. I'd love to hear your take on what you shouldn't do. Uh, don't try to be something you aren't. Uh, if your product or service doesn't meet their needs, start with the product or service. If your employees uh, who are millennials or Gen Z don't think it's amazing, then, you know, work on the product or service, get that right. Um, nothing will kill uh, kill, kill it faster than not having that right. Uh, and then uh, how unique is it? And, and can you build an emotional connection with consumers? Uh, if, you're, if you're thinking we're going to win because uh, a functional benefit strategy, ours is going to taste better, ours is going to this, ours is going to that, like that's a tough road. Not too many brands win because of that because I can pretty much copy anything. You're going to have to win because you win their hearts. And so winning their hearts, uh, that's a more challenging, complex thing. Every, you know, if your core customer is someone who's older and, and loves what you do, maybe, maybe don't try to do the same thing to win that, you know, start a new brand to win that consumer that's younger or do something that's different, you know, like don't try to be everything to everybody that might alienate your core consumer. Speaking of uh, more classic brands, uh, do you think there are big companies out there that are doing this well, that are really able to cascade down the generational gaps that we talk about and, and market to people where other older businesses are failing? Yeah, I, I think there are for sure large brands that are doing it really well. And I think the reason they're doing it really well probably is uh, the understanding that I got to make it affordable and accessible for the consumer to, to sort of love my brand. I mean, take a brand like Nike, I mean, <laughs> you know, they sort of sell a perfect commodity product yet people love the product. Younger consumers really love the product. Uh, if older consumers are offended by Nike at the end of the day, I don't buy tennis shoes today the way I used to, 
when I was younger, I used to run half marathons and stuff like that. And I bought tennis shoes all the time. And now I buy one pair a year. So if they offend me in order to win over a younger consumer, I can talk about it, but who cares? <laughs> you know, cause I'm just not the center of the bullseye anymore. I've aged out, but they don't. Cause at the end of the day, I recognize their brand is about having a consumer culture view at the same time. Chick-fil-A's brand is about having a consumer culture view. And so you might think of Nike as liberal and Chick-fil-A as conservative. I wouldn't. I would see them as identical twins. Identical twins that lean into values with employees and consumers as a way to navigate. Because on a price per ounce basis, you aren't buying Chick-fil-A's nuggets or Nike's shoes. Neither of them win, right? So if I was a small business owner, I'd want to understand what is my brand's editorial authority? What are these? What are the things that are going to allow me to really drive growth and create passion inside and outside my organization? And, and then I try to road, roadmap that and scale it. And I've been fortunate to work with people smarter than me who run these businesses because I'm not running them. Uh, and and I, I benefit by their, by their growth. But the flip side is, Franklin, if you own 90% and I own 10 who wins the most, Franklin, right? So, you know, make sure you aren't trying to own 100% of the world's smallest company. That is a great point. Like we talk about like building your tribe around you and finding the right people. Um, that is, I think that is one of the most common mistakes that I see startups make is threading the needle with giving equity away or not giving equity away. And I see it I see the mistake where they never give any away and they're trying to do everything on their own and, and they're just stunting their growth and it's hard to build a team around you if they're not bought in to the mission. But then also like, you know, I see people make the mistake where they start giving it out like Santa Claus and then you look up four years from now and you start looking at the cap table and there's 27 people on there and, and 14 of them no longer work at the company and we're only really valuable for a small period of time. So we could probably do a whole episode on the tactical stuff there, um, but when you get when you when you're building your business, you got to go find. So if you don't know the generational marketing techniques that that Jeff's talking about, you got to go find somebody, and you got to get them on your team, and you got to get them motivated and aligned, because there is, particularly if you're building a consumer based business, there is no path forward uh, without understanding Gen Z and millennial buyers today. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I haven't been given any stock in anything. I've always had to pay for it. But I usually find that I am able to buy at a favorable discount from whoever owns a lot because I'm going to add value. So, you know, on the cap table thing, I don't know that I want to dive too deep into that. That's a that's a complex business by business thing and certainly something I do. I do have to give away shares in these businesses, but I haven't been given any. I bought in. But I think buying in at a discounted price if I'm adding value is a decision that's easy for a business owner to make. And so, uh, you know, that's probably a whole nother episode. Uh, I'm definitely a fan of, of, of having equity partners. Uh, most of the time though, if you have someone who's a rock star, who's 35 years old, they're probably not going to write you a check to, to have some equity, but you, you certainly can come up with creative ways to get them equity over time and to make sure that they need to stick around. Uh, to get the benefit of that equity through vesting or however you want to do that. Uh, but, but that feels like another episode and, and not my core focus. I've certainly had to deal with it in the, in the businesses I'm in, though. Yeah, if you get it wrong, it's, it's painful. 
You know, that's you just get to rebuy the equity from someone who left. Yeah, or you get a whole bunch of people that are are, are you know winning a whole bunch of uh, of the spoils and not didn't put in a lot of the work. You know, and and that's and that's a challenge too. Um, so Jeff, this was this was a this was a really great conversation. I think that um, you know we could we could dive. There's so many different angles that we could we could go into this, but to kind of leave people with a final thought. If you're building your business and uh, and Gen Z and millennial consumers are a big part of that, what is the one thing that you need to focus on or the one thing you need to aim your business at in order to to connect with that crowd? Whether you're B2B or B2C, whether you're direct to consumer or through distribution, win inside before you try to win outside and don't try to be something you aren't. That's so good. I haven't heard somebody say win inside before, but that's so good. Jeff, we really enjoyed having you on the show today. Great perspective. Uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to want to be able to follow you and connect with you after the show. Where can we find you? You can get me uh, at email, jfromkc, J-F-R-O-M-M-K-C at gmail.com. Of course, KC is the barbecue capital of the world. Or you can just type in type in Jeff Fromm in LinkedIn and you'll find me, Jeff, J-E-F-F, Fromm, F-R-O-M-M. And uh, we can connect in LinkedIn. Casey is the barbecue capital has got me shook. I'll tell you what we'll do. You come to Kansas City. We'll blind taste test three or four barbecue joints. You'll tell me what you like, and then and then we'll talk about it. And we'll blind taste test from three or four. What's your favorite barbecue joint in KC? Depends what kind of food you want. Ooh, God, this is a connoisseur. If I want a sandwich, I'm probably going to KC Joe's, uh, which used to be called Oklahoma Joe's. If I want to sit down, I'm probably going to Jack Stack. Uh, or uh, a couple other spots are pretty good too. Uh, Q39 uh, won't leave you hungry. Same invitation to you, Jeff. I'm in Austin, Texas, so if you're ever out this way, uh, certainly swing by, and we'll do the same thing. We'll we'll, we'll go head to head on some brisket, <laughs> some beef ribs. You know, I'll I'll come down to Austin. I was down in Austin a couple months ago. I'll come back. Let's do it. I'll get blown out of here if I don't throw a plug in for Alabama white sauce poultry barbecue. Come on. It's like, this is the holy trinity of barbecue on this show right now. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to have you here. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Hey, friends. Thanks for listening to the Slow Smoke Business Podcast. Now, if you found something on this episode that was valuable, we would love it if you would go into where you're listening to this podcast, give us a five-star rating, subscribe, and maybe tell a friend. See if they could get something valuable from this show, too. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.